Okay, Deuteronomy 9. Deuteronomy 9. Let's start out by reading the first six verses. My guess is that you're all going to get the point of what this chapter is saying in these first six verses. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today, it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, do not say in your heart that the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Verse 5. It is not for your righteousness or for an uprightness of heart that you are going to possess this land, but it's because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you the good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Now I said you're all going to get the point The overall chapter is about the fact that you're not getting this land because of your righteousness. It is not because you deserve it. It's not because you earned it. And the value of repetition is it drives home a lesson in verses 4, 5, and 6. Each say, don't say in your heart, I'm being given this land because of my righteousness. And gives various reasons why they are given the land. That's going to be our focus, These, the subject introduced in those verses for most of the lesson because he's going to go on then and give illustrations of that from their history. But what we want to do first of all, look briefly at what's said in verses 1 through 3. In 1 through 3, he is promising them, and in 1 through 6 is a unit, but here in verses 1 through 3, he tells them that they are going to possess the land. They're going to possess the land. Now, back in chapter 1, when he was reviewing Israel's history, when Moses was telling things that had happened in the past, what were a couple of the main reasons that they didn't believe they could take the land of Canaan? What were a couple of main reasons they said we cannot take the land? What was that? Okay, because of the size of the people. And Stephanie, you put your hand up. Okay, also the cities are fortified to heaven. And we see both of those stated in Deuteronomy 1 and verse 28. Because the people in the land were large and because their cities were well fortified, Do you notice that Deuteronomy 9 verses 1 through 3 anticipates both of those objections? 
It emphasizes in verse 1, you're crossing over the Jordan to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. And he says in verse 1 that they have cities, they have cities that are fortified to heaven. Cities that are fortified to heaven. And then in verse 2, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, of whom you have whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before them? Not only are the large people mentioned in Deuteronomy 1 verses in verse 28, but specifically in that text, the sons of the Anakim are mentioned. And so he is dealing with the two objections that Israel has leveled in the past saying we can't take the land. And he's saying, don't let these be a deterrent to you now. How can they take the land if the people are enormous and if the cities are well fortified and if the nations are stronger and mightier? How can they take the land? Because in verse 3, it is the Lord your God who is crossing before you as a consuming God is a consuming fire. That statement was made in Deuteronomy 4 verse 24 as a warning against sin. Particularly against the sin of idolatry. But it is given in Deuteronomy 4 as a warning. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 3 The fact that God is a consuming fire is an assurance. The same truths of God that are terrifying to unbelievers can serve as an assurance to believers. It is an assurance that none of your enemies, as tall as they are, as well fortified as their cities are, are going to be able to stand against you. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you and you will drive them out before the Lord your God. So this is a statement to us that God is going to give them the land in spite of these obstacles. Now, God giving them the land against these strong people and against these well-fortified cities, there is a temptation that the people will start to think, I'm something. He tells them in verse 4, Do not say in your heart. Do not say in your heart. That same warning was given in 7.17. In 8.17. In 9.4. Don't say in your heart, how can I possess the land? Don't say in your heart, my own hand and my own power did this for me. And don't say in your heart, the Lord has given me this land because I'm so righteous. Now, a couple of words that are very big here. The words righteous and the words, the words, let me see how it's translated again in my version. It is translated uh, to possess or to drive out. The same Hebrew word can mean to possess or it can mean to dispossess. And in this text, it either means dispossess or drive out. In 9, verse 1, verse 3, 
verse 4 and verse 5, and yet the same word means to possess or to inhabit in verse 4, 5, and 6. But the word righteous or righteousness is used in 9 verses 4, 5, and 6. And he gives three reasons, basically. Three reasons not to say, I've inherited the land, you've inherited the land because of your own righteousness. And what are those reasons in verses 4 through 6? Do not say in your heart that you've inherited the land because of your own righteousness. Why is it they are inheriting the land? Okay, it's not because you're so righteous. It's because the other people are wicked. And you see that both in verse 4 and in verse 5. In both verse 4 and verse 5, a reference to the wickedness of the nations. You remember that God told Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 6. In Genesis 15 verse 16. He said, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. When Israel conquered the land of Canaan, it was not only a gift of the land to Israel, but it was a judgment on the inhabitants of the land because they were extremely wicked. You see that in Genesis 15 16. You see that in Leviticus 18, verses 24 through 30. You see that in Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26. You see that in all kinds of passages. So it's not because you're so righteous, but it's because they're so wicked. But what else does he say? It's not because you're so righteous, David, but what else? Okay, the Lord swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land. It's not because you're so righteous. It is because God is a promise-keeping God. And God does what He says. And God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He would give you the land. It's not because you're so righteous, but they are so wicked. It's not because you're so righteous, but it's because of God's promise. And then he says, it's not because you're so righteous. Well, what's the last reason? You're stubborn. You're stubborn. You are stubborn. You are stiff-necked. And the New American Standard has the word stiff-necked. But it can be translated stubborn in several versions. And that last reason that he states, it's not because you're so righteous, because you are not righteous. That's going to be the focus of the rest of Deuteronomy 9. The rest of Deuteronomy 9 is going to review events from Israel's history to show you're not so righteous. And therefore, you can't say you're getting the land because of that. Now, right there, does anybody have a question that they want to ask? Or thought they want to add? Anybody? What does he give in Deuteronomy 9 as exhibit A 
that the people have been a wicked and sinful, stiff-necked and stubborn people. What does he give as his primary evidence? What sin in the Old Testament? What event? The golden calf. The golden calf. Really, the verses 9, 7 to 21 deal with the golden calf incident. Now, he mentions some others in verse 22 through 24. He mentions Tabera, Massa, Kibratatab. Tabera is the people were complaining and the Lord sent fire to burn some of the outskirts of the camp. That's recorded in Numbers 11, verses 1 through 3. Numbers 11, verses 1 through 3. Tabera, Massa, which was recorded in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. This is where the people complain to Moses that there's no water. Moses says, Lord, the people are about to stone me. And uh, God told Moses to take water and hit the rock, and, or take uh, his rod and hit the rock, and water would come out of it. By the way, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 also referred to this event. Deuteronomy 6, 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, for you tested him at Massa. So that is also given as proof of their sinfulness. Then he says, at Kibroth Hatava. Now that is the incident where the people are complaining, wounding quail, and God sends them quail, but they are struck while the quail is in their mouth, and some of them die. Now God could have used a lot more illustrations than that. In verses 23 and 24, he uses Kadesh Barnea, and that is where the spies are sent out, and that's recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. But all of these are illustrations that you're not getting the land because you're so righteous. Because you're not. And if you ever think, if you ever start to think that you're something, just review your history like this, like God reviews Israel's, and you will be reminded real quickly that you don't deserve salvation because you're so righteous. Because you can think of times that you fell short dramatically. Now, as I was reading this today, I want to tell you something that hit me. I hope this is going to be helpful to you in looking at this, the rest of this chapter. What, what he really does from Exodus 9 verse Seven up to um, Numbers or uh, Exodus. Okay, wrong book. Okay, what he does from Deuteronomy nine verse seven to Deuteronomy ten verse eleven is largely focused on this golden calf episode. Outside, he mentions a few other cases, but he's focusing mainly from nine seven to 10 verse 11 to on the golden calf. And as he focuses on that golden calf incident, he shows us all that happened there, how sinful they were, and how God was gracious. But this 
this was the way I uh, started reading it and making notes to this. One of the points emphasized is God's covenant with Israel. God's covenant with Israel. And we'll put verses under that in a moment. Secondly, and this is probably the longest category, Israel's sin and rebellion. God made a covenant with Israel. Israel is going to be sinful and rebel. And so this arouses or provokes God's anger. Then, another thing highlighted in this section is Moses, in his role as a mediator and intercessor, praying for the people. And then fifth, God's mercy, God's grace, God's long-suffering. All of these are highlighted. Now, I would say that really God's mercy and grace and long-suffering are evident from point one. Because God entered into a covenant with Israel, not because they deserved it, not because they were so good, but just because of His mercy, His grace, and His compassion. Remember when God chose Abraham, what had been the past of Abraham's father and grandfather uh, in Joshua 24? They'd been worshipers of the Lord, worshipers of Yahweh. They had been idolaters in those passages. And Ezekiel 16 makes a play on that to say that your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. In other words, you, you come from sinful stock and the very fact God entered into a covenant with Israel was mercy from day one. From day one, it was God's mercy and grace. Just as God giving His Son on the cross is mercy and grace right from the very beginning. Uh, also, a passage to show that God's mercy, God's covenant with Israel is a matter of grace. In, in Ezekiel 20, verses 7 through 9, God talks about how Israel worshipped idols in Egypt. Ezekiel 20, 7-9. And God contemplated destroying them while they were slaves in Egypt. But I didn't because of my name's sake. But particularly this theme of God making a covenant with Israel here is stressed in chapter 9, verses 9-11. through 11. Look at 9, 9 through 11 as, as Moses talks about these events of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. In verse 9, when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God and on them all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain for the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. 
And it came about the end of 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. God's mercy and grace is evident from the beginning by even entering into a covenant with these sinful people. And Moses had already read the words to the people before he came down with the tablets of stone in Exodus 24. And when the people heard the words, you remember how they responded? When the people heard the words, what did they say? All the Lord has said we will do. All the Lord has said we will do. Too bad that wasn't the case. Now I want you to, if you just look for these in every verse, you're not going to find too many verses that do not highlight Israel's sinfulness and rebellion. Look at verse 7. Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you left the land of Egypt that you, until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Now, in both of those passages, you see references to Israel's sin. And in both of them, you see references to the Lord's anger. You provoke the Lord to wrath. You provoke the Lord to anger. But I want you to notice. He says the people sinned from the day they left Egypt. And we saw it started before then. The day you left Egypt to right now, you've been sinful. And the term he uses in that, in verse 7, is you've been rebellious. What was Israel told to do to a son who was stubborn and rebellious? It's going to be later in this book if you don't know. God, what was that? Take him to the gate and stone them, as Carrie says in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. God doesn't execute that punishment with his rebellious son Israel. He doesn't execute that punishment. They were rebellious from the day they left Egypt. And I want you to particularly know. In verse 8, he says, you were rebellious at Horeb. And remember, Horeb is the name for Mount Sinai. It's the name for Mount Sinai that he uses. Do you remember how at Mount Horeb, the mountain was smoking? The fire was going up. The people were terrified. They said, Moses, you speak to us and don't let God speak to us or we will die. Remember that? Remember how they were terrified at God's presence. And when they were terrified at God's presence, God says, it is good that this thought was in you. But yet, even at that place where God, this holy God, revealed himself, even in Horeb, they sinned. And they worshiped this golden calf. And it provoked the Lord, the Bible says, to anger. So much so in verse 8, that it says he would have destroyed you. Now look at verse 12. 
The Lord said to me, Arise and go down from here quickly, for your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I have commanded them and made a molten image for themselves. The Lord spoke further, verse 13, to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot them out from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of covenant, the covenant were in my hand. And I said that you, would, you have indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You have made for yourselves a molten and you have turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord has commanded you. I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hand and smashed them before you. And I fell down before the Lord as at first, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of his anger and hot displeasure, which which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me this time also, that time also. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. I also prayed for Aaron at the same time. I took your sinful thing, the calf which you have made, and burned in it with fire and cursed and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust into a brook that came down from the mountain. But Israel turned aside. They made a molten image in violation of the second commandment, not to make a graven image. They are a stubborn or stiff-necked people. You sinned against the Lord your God. And you did what He commanded you not to do. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Because of all of your sin. And he calls the idol that they made a sinful thing. Israel's sin and rebellion is front and center in this section. Do not say, I'm getting the land because I'm so righteous. Because that's just not the case. I'm glad listening to this. I'm glad I've always listened to God, aren't you? But I've never done anything wrong. Israel is a reflection, I think, of what we would be if the Bible was written today about the world and about the church. Even the people of God. And all over, there are references to the Lord's anger. The Lord's anger was so intense that He would have destroyed the people. You see that in 9 verse 8. You see that in verse 14. You see that in verse 19, He would have destroyed Aaron as well. Even the high priest needed Moses' intercession to spare him. And in verse 25 and 26, we're going to see the same thing when the Bible tells us a little bit further about Moses' prayer of intercession. But Moses fasted 
First of all, he went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat or drink to receive the commandment in 9-9. And then he fasted another 40 days and 40 nights, begging God to spare the people. Now, you know what the obvious implication of this text is? God would have destroyed the people had it not been for the prayer of Moses. I wonder how many times something like that happens to us. What are the evidences of God's mercy and grace and long-suffering in this passage? What are the evidences of this? Bob? First and foremost, he has an audience. Exactly. they didn't deserve it. God was long-suffering with them. And God was spared. He spared Aaron. He spared the people. He, God was, was so gracious to them in being good to them, sparing them, uh, giving them mercy. Also, the fact that in Deuteronomy 9, uh, you also see in Deuteronomy 9 in verse 19 and then is the fact that it says, The Lord listened to me. When Moses interceded, when Moses mediated in 9.19, and I think, it's, I think this is said again in 10 verse 10, it said the Lord listened to Moses. The Lord listened to Moses. You know what's remarkable about that? That word listen is used one other time. It's used in 9.23. And you know what it says in 9.23? It talks about the fact that Israel did not listen to God. Israel didn't listen to God. And they should have been destroyed. But when Moses prays and intercedes for them, God hears. God listens. God is gracious. God is long-suffering. God is compassionate. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. He has those two stat tablets of stone in his hand. He shattered them at the foot of the mountain. I, I don't think that that's a fit of uncontrollable rage. We've seen that God's anger is a key point. Moses is reflecting God's anger at the broken covenant. He hurls down these tablets and shatters them. But what happens when we get to chapter 10? He cuts out two more stone tablets. And God writes on them again. God renews the covenant. God renews the covenant with them. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is long 
suffering to Israel. Now, we could emphasize various things in the text to highlight these points even more. But I think you see very clearly demonstrated God's mercy. I may, if someone reminds me, try to send out the notes I have on this section to to help you all if you want to study with it. But any questions or comments right there through verse 24 particularly? Yes? This just seems to mirror the new covenant, the a better man came with a better covenant, and it happens to be the very finger that wrote on these tablets that is here in person now to make a covenant with us. Mm-hmm. And it just almost mirrors this covenant gets better. Oh, as far as these kind of points, yes, absolutely. That, that, that God is gracious to even offer a covenant to human beings. Of course, it's extended now with all peoples and all peoples who follow Him are in a sense His Israel, His people. And yet we sin and rebel and we arouse God's anger and yet God keeps forgiving us and keeps receiving us back to Himself. So yes. Absolutely. There are a lot of things, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, that portray Jesus as another Moses. Of course, he's greater than Moses. It's not to limit him by the example of Moses, but several things in his career patterned after Moses to, to, to demonstrate that. So that's good. Uh, was it Alan? Okay. Yes, yes. And, and Josiah was humble and repentant there in Second Chronicles 34 and um, gives his heart to the Lord much. Um, and all that, oh, that always people would respond like he did in that text to the reading of the word. Moses' intercession is recorded in verses 29, 25 through 29 of chapter 9. I want you to notice that Moses doesn't one time say, God, spare the people because they're so righteous. He doesn't say that. He, he, he talks about their stubbornness and their wickedness, but he doesn't talk about their righteousness. And he talks about God's character, though. In verse 25 through 29, I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and 40 nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance whom you redeemed through your greatness, 
whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at the wickedness of their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet you are your, yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Do you notice how he emphasizes all God has done with the people? The fact that in verse 26, you redeemed them and you brought them out of Egypt. In verse 27, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 28, he doesn't use this word, but he is appealing to God's reputation. What they may say about you if you destroy them now. And in verse 29, he says they're your people, your inheritance, whom you brought up by your power and your outstretched arms. These people, spare these people because of their relationship with you. It is both sobering and comforting to know that God's reputation in this world is to a large degree tied to what happens with His people, how they live, how they do. It's largely tied with that. That is a sobering thought. What do people see in us? Out of the world is going to criticize Christians and criticize the church when they do the right thing. You see that all the time. But if they criticize us for doing the right thing, that's their problem. But if we're doing what's wrong, if we're doing what's foolish, if we're giving them ground for accusation, that's our fault. We have to be careful But also know that God may bless people, not because of their righteousness, but just because of the fact that God's name might be honored through them and by them. Anyway, any questions there? Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 9, 1, 1 through 11, is going to talk about the Moses cutting out the two tablets of stone. One, uh, he's going to cut them out. He's going to bring them back to the mountain. And God's going to write on them the words that he wrote on the first tablet. And it says you're going to make an ark. You're going to make the ark of the covenant. And you're going to put these two stone tablets within them. In verse 5, I turned and came down from the mountain. And I put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And they are there as the Lord commanded me. Now verses 6 and 7 are a geographical and historical insert from Numbers 33, verses 30 through 34, as it talks about various places they traveled and things that happened. 
In verse 8, at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant, to stand before the Lord, to bless, to serve Him, and to bless in His name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or inheritance among his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke. Moreover, I moreover stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me at that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people, that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So God renews the covenant as a sign of his grace. God gives the tablets They write in the tablets once again, and Moses puts them in the Ark of the Covenant. God is showing His mercy, His long-suffering, His grace to the people. Now let's start with chapter 10, verse 12. 10, verse 12 will begin with several different topics that are covered rather quickly. In verse 12... Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What does the Lord your God require you? Do you remember that question you asked anywhere else? What does the Lord... Very good. Micah 6 and verse 8. The answer is not exactly word for word the same. It's the same idea. What does the Lord require of you except to do justice, to love mercy, walk humbly with your God? Very good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Here, what does the Lord require from you? To fear Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to walk in His ways. To fear Him, to love... You know, when you look at that, I'm not so sure those terms are not being used there almost parallel. If that's true, you know what's fascinating? To fear God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to fear Him, and to love Him. Maybe basically parallel in this passage. Pretty close to it if it's not. In verse 13, you're to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today, for your good. God's instructions are not for His benefit, but for ours. For our good. As 6, 24 and 25 says. Now I want to ask you, what's the purpose of verses 14 and 15? Listen to this. Behold, the Lord your, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is on, in it. Yet on your fathers did the let, yet on your fathers did the Lord your God set his affection to love them. He chose their descendants after them. Even above all peoples as it is this day. Now I'm not confident I read that well enough. 
But, but, but be looking at the text as I try to sum it up again. To the Lord belongs all of heaven and all of earth. And the Lord set his affection on you. What is the point there? What is the point? Mary, you look at you. Okay. Exactly. Right now, so you're going to end with the same thing you're saying. Okay. The point everything belonged to God. Every nation, every people belonged to God. But the Lord set his affection on you. You know, what if your, you know, your wife threw up to you? Um, as maybe they do in times of crisis. Hey, I could have married anybody I wanted and I picked you. I'm not saying that's what happened to me, but, but I'm saying I could a picture that, that happened sometime. What was the point of that? Listen, you're blessed to have me. Is that true in a marital level? Yes. How much more from the standpoint of a relationship with God? God could have had anybody or anything and he set his affection on you and chose you. I love this statement and I know I've made this before. But when John, in the Gospel of John, and I think this is what's happening, that John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, it is not a statement of pride. It is a statement of all that God loved him, that Jesus loved him. He cannot get over the wonder of God's love. And Israel should have never gotten over that wonder. The Lord set his affection on you to love you and chose your descendants. And he tells them in verse 16, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Now back in chapter 9, when God was saying, help, help disobedient Israel was, he said, you stiffened your neck. You were stiff-necked. Or you were stubborn, remember, we had on the board. He said that in 9 verse 6 and 9 verse 13, and here in 10 verse 16, don't be stiff-necked and don't be circumcised in heart. Or be, excuse me, um, he says, do be circumcised in heart. Circumcise your heart Stiffen your neck. Okay, I'm going to quote something in the Bible. Who's speaking? You stiffen and uncircumcised. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not kill and persecute? Who is speaking? Stephen. Stephen. But Stephen says, you're stiff necked. You're uncircumcised. Deuteronomy 10, 16 addresses both of those. Circumcise your heart. Don't be stiff-necked. The point of physical circumcision was that you are to humble your hearts and surrender your spirits to God. It was a physical act, but it also indicated a spiritual reality 
In verse 18, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens. In the land of Egypt, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, you shall cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. In verse 15, God set His affection on us and loved us. Because God loves us, in verse 12, we're called to love Him. God loves us, verse 15, we love Him Verse 12, God loves the alien and the stranger and shows this compassion by doing good to them and giving them food. In verse 18, because God loves them, we are to love them too. In verse 19, show your love for the alien. We love who God loves. We love God who set his affection on us. And loved us. In verse 21, He is your praise and He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Do you remember back in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8? The Bible emphasized God didn't set His love upon you and choose you because you were more than all people, because you were the fewest of people. And now God emphasizes how they were the fewest of people. There's only 70 of them when they went down into Egypt. But now they have been multiplied as the stars in heaven. What thoughts do you have as we end anything? Yes, Raymond. God's purposes of saving His people and establishing His people will not ultimately be undone in spite of them. I heard a person once say about a, about a person, and this was a pretty good estimation. Said people love Him. In spite of himself. In spite of all the mistakes he makes, by all his trouble, people love him. People are attracted to him. That is, in a way, true of Israel. God's going to fulfill his purposes in his people in spite of themselves. In spite of them. Anything else? Yes, Beth. By being, by being what? Well, they are forefathers of those people in a sense that they will respond to God in rebellious and hard-hearted ways. So yes, what we see going through the whole Old Testament finds its culmination in the sacrifice, in the crucifixion of Christ. So yes. Try to read 12, 11 and 12 for Sunday. We will see how far we get. Thank you.